Number 7 Media Production. Welcome to Best Crush, where I interview successful South African entrepreneurs and movers and shakers to extract practical advice on how to succeed in business and life. I'm your host, Jacques Basson. Come along on a journey with me as we delve into the African business world with Dr. Atendo Windingwi. With over 20 years of expertise, he's the man and founder behind Tribe Africa Advisory, crafting business programs for major companies across the continent. Beyond the suits and strategies, he also wears hats as the non-executive director of the British Chamber of Business in Southern Africa. Of course, that's where we met as we are also members of the chamber and the chairman of the American Chamber of Commerce Digital Forum Committee. But the surprises don't end there. Retendo recently gifted us with his latest book, Reflections of a Son of the Soil, a collection of 55 African proverbs. And that was also the starting point of a very fun and laughter-filled episode as we delve into his vast experience the nuances and opportunities of doing business in Africa. I'm telling you, I'm telling you, it's the brandy. <laughs> Things happen when you when you drink too much grapes. <laughs> now I know, man. Uh, yeah, there's something in the coffee. <laughs> you know, you know what we the the, the name the Afrikaans for the the brandy and the coffee. Ah, uh, no, have you ever heard of it? So we call it a brofi. A brofi. But uh, and the other name is polisi coffee. A police. So so back in the oaks, they oh. they spiked it. <laughs> <laughs> so it's polisi coffee. Polisi coffee. The Branavain brandy and 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 coffee. No, I must remember that next time. When when I grew up. As a, as a youngster, obviously you had the door-to-door salesman, yeah. salesman, yeah. selling the encyclopedias. What are they called? These, um, yeah, Britannic, Brit- yes, Britannica, 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 the yes. whole set. Yo. Yes, yeah. and and it touches on this this book with the proverbs, right? Um, and I remember, so my dad invested in that. I, was, I think I was seven. Was okay. We were still we were still in Natal. I'll yeah, forget it. But anyway, and. Uh, these books, there was uh, a range that they called Children of the World. Okay. And in each book was, uh, there's a story. Uh, funny enough, I remember one of the first stories uh, I read was Israel. So okay. the children of Israel. So they'll, okay. they'll be a country, and yeah. this is across Africa, and then yeah. they'll explain to you what the kids do. Okay. Where do they live? What happens there? Okay. What do they it's eat? The I, re- I remember with Israel, I was like, what do you mean Sunday is Saturday? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, that's weird. Anyway, but it was, and then I read these African children's stories. Okay. So that was my my Google, my PlayStation. Okay. So so this is, it, it resonates with me with, oh, with these, these stories of... Of the different countries, I'm glad but to uh, hear that, man. but listen, welcome in the studio. Thanks, but I, I appreciate your time. I know you're a you're a busy man, but but give us the rundown. Where where did it all start? Where did you grow up? Yeah, sure. And the journey to where we're sitting at. How long is a piece of string? So, um, <laughs> so born and bred in, in Zim. Um, father, I mean, I have three two siblings. I'm the eldest. 
Uh, I was born in the eastern side of um, it's, it's the eastern side of Zimbabwe called Mutare. Uh, it's got a very great story in terms of um, in terms of South Africa or Zimbabwean history. But I think uh, th- that province of Manikaland, where I come from, is actually where my my, my father's and, and his parents came from, uh, and my, my mother comes from. I think the east, western side of of uh, or the eastern side of Zim. But my name, so my first name is Rutendo, uh, but my surname Wintingri, I always like to share this, is, um, was actually a nickname gave, given to my ancestors, ancestors for elephant hunting. Oh. Yeah, yeah, the guys used to hunt, uh, and one of the legacies in our family that is passed down from, uh, to the eldest son uh, over the years is the equipment they used to use. And it was a very traditional bow and arrow. Uh, and not the one that William Tell uses, you know, with the crossbow. Crossbow. Offensive. It was very basic and an X. You ask yourself. To hunt an elephant. Hunt an elephant. Good heavens. Uh, there must have been a lot of teamwork. <laughs> Either that or it was veal elephants. You I know, going after the kid elephant. Yeah, I just want to say, I can't imagine with a little bow and arrow. But, but that's the story. So yeah, because when you look at the equipment, you kind of say, uh, okay. Then, then you don't ask questions. Des- de- desperate, stupid, yeah. or clever. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but. Um, you know, so but, but that's where the name comes from, Windingui. It, it was a nickname given to them for elephant hunting. So that th- th- that's my in terms of origination. So, Bonimutare grew up. Um, Sorry to interrupt you. Yeah. Are, are you very um, historically even now? Is it very? Um, I don't know what's the right word. Let's say friendly rivalry between the areas. Let's say. You think South Africa? You think rugby? You know, a Blue Bull supporter yeah, yeah. versus a, oh, yeah. a, a Stormer supporter, is they in different yeah. type of cultures? Stormers play rugby. I know. I, I heard something. Is that what is the what is that? I thought it's a sailing. It's a yachting <laughs> team. It's a yachting team. I don't, <laughs> yeah, I don't know about rugby team. Yeah, I think for Western Cape's guys will say it differently. Yeah, you wanna, you, I think Zimbabwe is not that big demographically. Uh, I think there's rivalry in sport. Yeah, maybe to the soccer, like the. For example, there's a, there's a, there was a team called Dynamos, which was in the Harare province, the main province, the equivalent of Gauteng. And then the other big province is Zimbabwe's Matabiniland, and there's a team called Islands. <coughs> and there's that kind of from a soccer perspective. Other than that, um, I think because it's a small country, plus or minus 14 million people, it's a small geography. I think geographically, we're probably the size of... <sighs> Uh, maybe KZN is bigger. Maybe Gauteng, but Gauteng. Really? Yeah, I didn't realize they're actually that yeah, small. Look, geographically, we're not that big. Um, Population-wise, the same thing, we're not that big. But um, I think we're a very diverse country, though. You know, the, the if you go to the Eastern Highlands, it's it's like your Zanin, uh, Letaba. So, you know, you get citrus, you yes. get tea plantations, you got a guy vibe there. You go to the, the low veld. It's the KZN vibe in terms of it's hot, it's humid, mm. uh, sugar plant, I mean, sugar cane. Yes, yes. Industry is big there. You go to the Matabililand area, it's very, um, as you go between there and Victoria Falls, very dry, uh, good for ranching. So you've got, a, it's actually a beautiful country for, for in terms of geographical size, in terms of the diversity it has from a geographical and endowment perspective. 
you know, you you can then start talking about the mining and the mm. gold, the diamonds. Um, so, so in that sense, you know, from a natural structure perspective, from a geographical perspective, great. Sociopolitically, obviously, you know, we've gone through our hiccups. We're still going through them, unfortunately. What, what is what is the current state of affairs? You know, it's, like my colleague always says, it's, it's the same difference, man. Um, we obviously went through that whole socio-economic political debacle with the land reform. Uh, mm. Look, in principle, I think the whole land reform from an ideology perspective was right in terms of it's similar to BE. Yeah? It's how you, how you would do it. It's a how. And unfortunately, we, uh, it didn't work out in terms of the way it was planned to. During uh, President Mugabe's era, obviously, things went out of the uh, got quite escalated. Uh, President Nangago has obviously taken over. People, what people hoped would, would 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 unpack from an economic perspective and even from a social perspective hasn't really come out. So we could be in a much better place. Um, I'm hoping with time things will change. But you know these things, uh, unfortunately, we realize it it, it, uh, it takes longer than expected. So things are not great. I think we are still on triple digit inflation based on the Zim dollar. Um, they still uh, people are there's still quite a significant brain drain. You do have pockets of success. You do have pockets of uh, entrepreneurs be successful, uh, but largely this is because there is a, the parallel economy driven by the U.S. dollar. Because our own currency is no longer that strong, mm. uh, a parallel economy with this U.S. dollar is still quite strong, and it will be there for a long time. And unfortunately, when economies become pear-shaped like that, the parallel economy becomes very, 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 very active. What about tourism? And again, I'm thinking yeah. uh, with uh, fond, you know, back with fond memories. Um, yeah. In, in the nineties, where I bungee jumped yeah. and, and with oh, the White River, v- yeah, v- Vic Victoria, Fort. Fort. Yeah, 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 beautiful place. Look, Victoria. Funny enough, just that Victoria, uh, Victoria Falls uh, area itself has become quite a prominent, not just tourist place, but even from an economical, pers- economic, from an economical perspective. Really? Yeah, yeah. I mean, they've, is they've it like a hub? It's become a hub. It's become a hub, and two key things are happening there. One is that uh, they've they've actually built a, a stock exchange specifically for the Victoria Falls. Yeah. So people are willing to invest uh, in that space because because of the nature of, of tourism and the currency that's happening. And uh, I know that if, if not even fulfilled, that is for hospital tourism, I don't know if you've heard of the term. Yeah, it's tourism. like uh, I, I immediately think of, uh, I wanted to call it something else. Um, <laughs> let's call it plastic surgery. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if it's plastic surgery, but because of the underlying... Uh, stability of foreign currency and and revenue that's happening in the region. Uh, I think they are creating. Th- there's there's a vision to have a facility there where people can fly and get treated uh, from South Af- from within Africa. And uh, then you stay on for a holiday. You, well, you stay on for a holiday, but it's it's a you can come and get treated and you go. So that's oh the I see. So, so got it. Uh, because because of its location and remember one of the good things, Bobby does have great skill sets uh, in terms of capabilities. Um, so that in itself is a positive thing, but uh, you know, I think the challenge with with, with uh, you know, I hate to say all African countries, um, even we, I mean, you think you have a problem, then you go to the Middle East, then you realize, okay, we've got a problem, but things could be worse. You yeah. go to UK, things could be worse. I think zoning back to Zimbabwe, I mean, the countries around us are doing okay, Botswana is doing okay, Zambia is doing okay. Uh, even Angola had a few hiccups. Eswatini, most even Mozambique. Besides the the fighting around the uh, the northern part of Mozambique, they're, 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 you know, the, economically they they're also doing okay. So there's no excuse for us not to be doing okay. Uh, but it is what it is. And uh, so I was there. Zim uh, grew up there. 
and my f- got married there. My wonderful wife, uh, Prax. We've got three boys. Coincidentally, um, our firstborn was born in the other two here. And for the, I always say the funny thing is I've I've got two siblings or so three boys in our family two years apart, and I've got three boys with my wife and two years apart. Two years apart. So, uh, so How old are they? 18, 16, and fourteen this year. Sure. Yeah, so young men. Young men, so teenager geniuses. Uh, of course, they yeah. solve the. They, they know the answer to everything. Mine is sixteen. Oh, so, yeah, I, I yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you, so yeah. you know the vibe. But but an absolute blessing. Uh, my oldest is writing a trick this year. So obviously, quite a, a year of inflection for us. Mm. Been in South Africa since two thousand and six. Came here. I worked for a multinational called Sage. Um, we had to obviously relocate purely because of the economic situations. They might have stayed there, but I knew I wanted to stay in Africa, so South was the best place. We came down. Why? Why did you want to stay in in in, in Africa? Uh, yeah. And again, because I I asked the question because I remember I mentioned to you. Obviously, we we spent yeah. many a year, years years in the UK, yeah. and we had good Zimbabwean yeah. friends. Yeah. Obviously, professionals. I yeah. remember one guy was with Deloitte. Very difficult yeah. to border jump to the UK. <laughs> you can't just stroll over. <laughs> Look, you can easy yeah. to drive but across. But trying to get to the Mediterranean from Zim, it's like, like yeah, yeah, it's, it's like yeah, these these Spaniards and Italians are yeah, difficult. Yeah. But, yeah, it's a long queue. <laughs> so uh, yeah, it's not by by choice. I can tell you, <laughs> path of least resistance. <laughs> Sorry, man. You're saying something important. <laughs> so, so wh- why the? Uh, you said you wanted to stay in Africa. So yeah. obviously, you you would have had opportunities yeah. in in, yeah. in 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 Europe. But why why Africa? Yeah, that's a good point. I think. Uh, look, I did. There was a time in my earlier days uh, before I got married. I, I was looking at going for studies in the UK, US. It never really panned out. But I think the more I, I developed career wise, uh, I just felt. I remember specifically, maybe let me explain this way. When I left Zim, the re- what pushed me to leave Zim, I said to my wife, look, the economy is becoming so informal and so unpredictable. And uh, well, it's forcing us to go into a survivor mode, which which it was what it was, because current, there was no currency, there was shortage of fuel. Uh, you, you, were, you were playing survivor mode. Mm. And I said, I felt that if I was going to perform uh, in, in this market, I would have to, my mindset would always have to be in a survival mode. And my fear was that one day when things became right in Zim, the guys who had gone overseas would appreciated uh, a more developed world and uh, had been exposed to better things. When they came back, they would have better, they'll be better suited to leave the country because they've got a better perspective on mm. where the world can be. Yes. Um, so that was what pushed me out. But when I was looking for choices, then I said, okay, look, but I still want to be in, a, in, in, a, in an economy that will develop me, that will grow me, but still I'm in touch with Africa. And at that time, South Africa was pumping. Uh, look, at relative to Zimbabwe, it's still pumping. And, and, and that was, I think, the driving factor where I wanted to still make an impact in Africa, but still be in an environment that developed me, that, that allowed me to scale as an individual. Be on the front foot. Yeah, be on yeah. the front foot. And then I said one day when things come back, and I'm seeing it now. I mean, I've been, I've been done business in over 20 countries in 20 different, uh, and over the last 20 years, I, I, you know, I've opened up offices in Nigeria, Kenya, been part of those teams, Middle East. And you see guys who've, similar to you, who've gone, Africans who've gone to Europe, to the UK, and some of them coming back and saying, guys, um, my calling is here. Uh, mm. And there are some who stayed, That's and their calling is there, it's fine. I'm just, for this season, I just believe um, I had to come back. <laughs> we had to stay in South Africa. So we came here, and we haven't looked back. We've, we've settled in. 
Um, uh, I've worked for Sage while I was at Deloitte. Um, what What did you do? So give us a bit of background with Sage. And, and I'm curious, coming back to the 20 countries or yeah. so, or um, if you had to single out a few countries, I would say what a few fun facts, some, yeah, something yeah, yeah. weird, <laughs> uh, 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 you know, Nigeria versus <laughs> Middle East. But but what what did you do with Sage? And, and So... Uh, for me to talk about Sage, I must actually talk about when I was in Zim. Uh, one of the co- I worked for two companies or three. I was at Deloitte for a while. I was <coughs> going to be an accountant straight after school. I didn't see myself as a bean counter. Just to show where I was destined for. So straight after A level, I got a job as an article clerk. Because in Zimbabwe, you can be an article clerk for audit straight after A level. And I remember the first day of work. And in, and in those days, uh, the traditional suits in the big firms. Uh, I was at Deloitte. Was uh, tie, gray tie. I mean, gray suit, black suit, white shirt. And yes, that's and literally and summarizes their personalities yeah, personality. as well. <laughs> and I remember the first day of work, I rocked up with half a white shirt, half a black shirt, with, the, you know, those fluorescent Mickey Mouse ties? <laughs> then with the gray jacket. And the, the audit senior that was going to oversee our groups, I think, saw me coming. And he was a chartered accountant, but also a statistician. Whoa, Bruce. So I think uh, from day one, I was just, yeah, yeah, I think he saw me coming from a mile off and he says, no, 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 Mir, this is not This guy, it was, it was a rattle, so too, I, much, it, too much energy. And it, it wasn't great. <laughs> so I was there for two and a half years. Then I worked for Mirminika Freight, which became, which ended up being owned by Bid Freight. Uh, but I think a, a key area for my growth is when I joined a sage business partner called Chips. It was owned by a businessman called Rob Watson, who was still in good cahoots. And it really shaped and formed me. And it was when I was at Chips, which was a Sage business partner, then I came to, then I, I built quite a good relationship with the vendor, which was Sage. The head office was here. It used to be called Softline. That's what, uh, and then when I came, they actually gave me a job, which was great. And, and I, I learned over the years that it's important to build relationships because you never know what might happen. Mm. And that's what happened. So it was just important for me to highlight that context because it was a formative part of my career as an individual, even in the corporate space. So I came to Sage. And um, so, so Sage, big competition would be zero. Or what? What is Sage? So Sage uh, offered business management software right from startups um, right up to the enterprise level. So, so we it's were, not just so accounting yeah, software. It's it's it CRM was, everything. It was accounting software, CRM, payroll, HR. Got it. So Got VIP. It. So remember, think Softline VIP. They used to be quite prominent here. I mean, the head offices were here in, in, in Pretoria, uh, close to uh, the big mall there. So Sage listed on the UK Stock Exchange, bought out the Softline Group. The Softline okay. Group was actually listed on the South African Stock Exchange. The group CEO, CEO some of the execs was Ivan Epstein, Stephen Cohen, um, what's his name? Uh, it'll come to him. Anton Van Heerden, he used to run the the VIP role. So they bought them out. And the reason why Sage bought them out was that Sage had actually wanted to grow on the African continent. But every time they wanted to grow on the market, especially the South African market, which was the biggest market, they kept bumping into this South African company called Softline. Softline VIP, Softline Payroll, Softline Accounting. So they bought them out. Uh, obviously, the owners became millionaires. Mm. Um, so Sage took over Softline, uh, offering the solutions, competitive products, uh, at the entry level, Xero actually came later, but uh, Pastel, Pastel Express, those accounting packages were targeted at the entry level. They actually didn't have much competition here because if you think about it, any startup business in South Africa to a certain extent was using Pastel Partner. Pastel yes, Partner. I mean, it's very much. I remember uh, uh, why Xero, I was in the UK, our business was early adopter of Xero. Yeah. We started using Xero and 
I think it was 2011. 100%. And I remember and I came to South Africa and said, what's this pastel nonsense? I didn't even know what it was. Uh, pastel uh, was there way before Zero. So Zero came be popular uh, yeah, around that, that period uh, and they created an online solution. Uh, and then Sage at that time was software was not fully Sage. They also created an online solution. So that's the entry level of the market. But at the enterprise, they also made some acquisitions. There used to be an accounting product called ACPAC. Now they call it Sage 300. Uh, and that competed in the mid-market space uh, with your Microsoft products, with your SAP Business One. And then they also had enterprise products like CS3 and uh, X3. I know there's a new product called Intact. But the sweet spot really, uh, they really, they tried to a certain extent to push into the SAP Oracle, JD Edwards. But big, big, big boys. Yeah, but that was too high end. The sweet spot is actually that small to medium-sized market. And for the South African economy, that is the place, and even into the rest of Africa. Uh, Because the reality is the South African market sort of gauges the maturity even of the African market, and that's where the sweet spot is. And I think they've been doing well since then. But I was there for a good 10 years, and uh, I think what I really enjoyed when I used to... um, be in that space, competing with your Microsoft, your SAPs, your Oracles in the mid-market space, enterprise market space, was twofold. One is that uh, because of my passion, because in between that I also spent, uh, I think academically, I, you know, I did my master's, then I eventually did my PhD. And my focus was really looking at how multinationals can perform with their strategies and exceed in African markets. Uh, as well as emerging markets. What what was the uh, at that stage? Other than the fact that that I believe still that's a massive yeah. uh, uh, opportunity yeah. and so, yeah, service that's needed because yeah. companies don't understand yeah. Africa yeah. Um, or they think it's like America. I always yeah. say America is fifty countries. Yeah. Not it's not fifty states. Yeah. Don't think what yeah, applies yeah. in the west applies yeah. in the east. Yeah. You know that type of thing. Um, what. Um, I lost my train of thought now. Hang on, it comes back to me now. I can interview you, it's all right. Oh, sorry. <laughs> 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 all right, go, let's go. <laughs> Ask me a question. Uh, so uh, so the, the planning of, of uh, yeah, so the, the services of, of helping companies, uh, um, like I said, it, it's still a, 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 I guess, critical yeah. service. Yeah. Where are the opportunities? I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I've got a lot of questions, but what, what if, if you have to single out, I wanna, and I want to circle back also a few fun facts of the countries you yeah, worked yeah, in, but yeah, yeah. What, where are the opportunities if we, if we look at Africa yeah, now? I just yeah. want to fast forward no, quickly. You know, you've got, you bring, I, I've been asked that a lot of times. I, I mean, you especially when I, because I sit on the board for the British Chamber, I mean, you know that, and yes. the American Chamber Subcommittee, so I deal with a lot of multinationals. And for me, this, I think over the years, uh, I used to go overboard and I say, guys, Look, if you look at the reality of any entrepreneurial success anyway, it applies in the same way. But where the opportunities are, I always say identify the problem and then provide a solution uh, in it. And I think uh, and in, and in, by doing that, you provide two things. One, you provide, uh, you're making the right social impact, but you also need to make money, which is, which is not a bad thing. We, we don't survive all by NGOs. And um, I mean, I gave one of, you know, I do a lot of talks and uh, uh, programs with business schools like Stellenbosch and, and UCT. And I give an example, one of the case studies I talk about, like in Zim, you know, statistically the health industry is in total chaos. Um, I mean, I think one of the, uh, per, you know, per thousand, uh, per thousand people, uh, the chance of dying before 65 is is plus or minus uh i think plus or minus 
300 or 400, whereas a developed country like the US is like around 30 or something like that. Oh my goodness. It was it's literally 10 times. Yeah, yeah, no, it's ridiculous, something like that. And uh, because the health system is, is defunct, and unfortunately, uh, you know, like this year, you know, my father passed away at the beginning of the year. And uh, Sorry to hear that. Yeah, and, uh, you know, it, it was largely, if the health system was better, you could have had a, 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 and we on private medical aid and all that and all that. But coming back to your point is, uh, I remember there is a case study I gave, which was actually recognized in one of the Forbes magazine, whereby you've got all this lack of infrastructure, lack of health professional skills, but there were these doctors that are able to put money together and put a solution whereby they offered radiology services using AI, using even the minimum technology that was there, so that by having that technology, they can actually, they shaped like what you call telemedicine, whereby you actually can give... Yes and treat and diagnose patients in rural areas uh, remotely uh, without having to travel there, get cars, et cetera, et cetera. So obviously there's a certain level of limited diagnosis you can do, but the fact that you can reach to them when you can't reach them, that's one example. I mean, you've heard... I think now, especially with, I'm thinking, Starlink and, and Musk, you know, with yes. good connectivity. With so connectivity. the connectivity, that immediately opens yeah. up that channel. But that, that's got a double-edged sword, and I'll explain it to you as well. Because there's the whole thing about, you know, we, technology allows us to leap over our problems. And there's a double-edged sword there, but I'll get to that. But that's an example in terms of, uh, I mean, you've heard in Rwanda with regards to the blood uh, packets uh, for women who lose blood during pregnancies. Uh, and how they use uh, drones yes. to transport. That's been a popular one. Um, so there are a number of those things, and uh, which which are great. So I, I always say, you know, you know, if there's a, I'll give you. I mean, there was a time I took to Ethiopia. Uh, I was actually talking about it yesterday because I was doing a program with uh, one of the big petroleum companies here, and one of the case studies I gave them, I said, you know, I took a, 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 a the C-suite of some of the original equipment manufacturers or the CEOs of like Toyota, VW, et cetera, et cetera. We did, we took, we went to Ethiopia uh, to do an investment uh, feasibility drive. Uh, at the time I was at, uh, at Deloitte. And the purpose was obviously, just to give you some stats, uh, at the time, South Africa's population was 60 million and we had about uh, 12 million cars in South Africa, passenger vehicles. So right. the ratio was like one car to every five people. At the time, Ethiopia, and we're looking at about 2019, the population of Ethiopia was 100 million and there a million cars. Good event. So, so it's so about it's 1 million, uh, it's one car to 100 people. Yeah. So you can imagine if you had a car manufacturer, the opportunity that is there. So at a layman's level, you'll probably just say, okay, if you produce more cars, then you've reduced the gap. The challenge, though, is that one of the challenges in Ethiopia is one is uh, infrastructure. It doesn't have... Yeah, if you don't so have a road... So imagine you're pushing more cars and you don't have roads, the congestion that is there. Yes. Two is affordability. Mm. Uh, because their GDP per capita, South Africa at the time, we are... Our GDP per capita is 7,000 US dollars per person on average. Okay, so you have got 7,000 US dollars, I've got 7,000 US dollars. I love your 7,000 US dollars, by the way. <laughs> Just, but Ethiopia was 1,000 US dollars per person. So affordability is there. So, oh if that, so if you watch it, but then you say, but hang on, there's still a problem of transport. And you also can't just throw cars there. What's, then you start thinking, but hang on, how about if you offer mobility solutions, maybe public transport? And funny enough, uh, outside South Africa, Ethiopia, I think, was the first one to put the equivalent of a how train together, you know, like a yes. how train. Or not so again, you just build, just uh, again, you put it above the city. I mean, you it's easy, yeah. you know, on pillars. So and I don't know, obviously, there's a great war, et cetera, et cetera. But my point is, when you start uh, identifying the problems and you and you provide sustainable solutions, and I think key thing is sustainable solutions. I think the problem we've had in Africa is that traditionally, 
a president will say, you know, just come and manufacture cars, come and manufacture cars, and cars have been manufactured. One, you can't sell them all there. Two, there's, if you don't fix the roads, it's it's not really solving anything. All I just have is more congestion, more congestion. And ideally what happens is that not everybody can afford it, so you'll have one guy having seven cars mm. because he's doing dealings, whatever. But you've still got a multitude of the population. So I think that's one of the things that's what's... Uh, to a certain extent, you've got certain leaders in Africa now who are actually now thinking more maturely in that way. Abi Ahmed, to a certain extent... Uh, Kagame, although he's seen as a benevolent dictator, uh, even the guy in Angola. But uh, if we can, if we can get that kind of leadership, and we get key countries to do that, because you won't get all fifty-five or all fifty-four countries to do that. But if you get like a critical mass to influence the others, then we've got a better continent. But it's easier said than done. But that's well, just a snippet there. It's a, it's a, it's a very interesting example. How big a role does culture? Play yeah. and 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 I immediately so I, I started my career back in the day with Coca Cola yeah. and and the way people consume Coke yeah. in Africa the pack size yeah. returnable glass one way glass yeah. one liter yeah. two fifty so it's it's a cultural thing yeah. so it's not just bring a bigger bottle of Coke it, yeah. it's not going to work yeah. how big a role does culture play in in solving these problems is it a, is it a, again an opportunity <laughs> something to be aware of yeah. or is there is it a, is, does it create obstacles for example yeah. now you build a train but people like I don't know yeah. riding their bicycles yeah. for the last yeah. sixty years yeah. Well, the Dutch do it. Uh, they still ride their bicycles. <laughs> they still, <laughs> maybe they both, they've but got their little highways. They, got they, they, they ride their bicycles, but they still develop the country. Mm. So, and I've been to the Netherlands. I mean, the, you okay, know the story. Incredible everybody, uh, infrastructure. I remember when I was at uh, a multinational, a good colleague of mine, and uh, he went for a conference, and this was a, an accounting software, global accounting software, headquartered in um, Exact. It used to be called Exact, because I remember they tried to get the acquisition of Sage. Uh, or Softline, and, and they competed with Sage at the time. And he went for a big conference, and there were the conference, and this group's global CEO rode up to the conference on a bicycle. bicycle. And it wasn't out of the norm. It was like, <laughs> parked his bicycle, lifted it. <laughs> but, but I think it comes back to the point, you know, in terms of culture, I mean, culture is dynamic, and one of the things I talk about, uh, and that's why I like you know, this book that I've just released, Reflections of the Son of the Soil, is to say that one of the mistakes we make in terms of understanding, you know, dealing with guys who want to understand Africa is, is to homogenize the continent as opposed to embracing the heterogeneity. In other words, although we are one piece of land, there are 55 people groups, uh, 50, when I say 55 because Western Sahara is still in dispute, but according to the African Development Bank, it's a country, so... They keep it as 55. Mm. But uh, you, you've got all this complexity. And you and I know we're here in South Africa, right? The closest city to a country to us is Swaziland or Swatini. Uh, but you and I know the culture dynamics are totally different. Mm. I mean, uh, right from Pretoria going to KZ, cultural is the, And it happens in any region country. And uh, so one is to embrace that there's different diversity of culture. That's the first thing. And for you to be successful... You have to navigate through that culture. And in my book, Rumble in the Jungle Reloaded, one of the key attributes I give uh, why Muhammad Ali, well, we know it's not I gave him, he actually did it. Why he became, uh, talking to culture, why he beat George Foreman was that when, you know, when that fight happened in 1974, it was DRC, <coughs> excuse me, it was in DRC, and um, Muhammad Ali was the underdog, George Foreman was the world boxing champion. You know, on the day of the fight, in the stadium packed with 60,000 people, as Muhammad Ali got onto the boxing stage, people were screaming and already supporting him, and the fight hadn't even begun. 
And the, the history of that fight was none of the fighters had fought in Africa before. It was the first time. So there was no like hidden connections. Mm. There were so many underlying things. But what differentiated Muhammad Ali and gave him the edge uh, on that fight in terms of winning the crowd was the fact that he flew in a few weeks earlier, connected with the people, got to know them, got to know their culture. Uh, he, he, he won their hearts. Uh, and and that I think that summarized it all in terms of the importance of. What was that Ali Bumba? Yeah, what Ali were they, Bumba, were they, yeah, were they chanting? That? Yeah, Ali, what, is it, what does that mean? Uh, Ali kill him, kill him. Yeah, wow, Ali, Ali kill him. And uh, ready when you get supporters. And I say that you know by him winning the market share, um, the crowd, uh, he actually won the market. Was that, that? Uh, the concept? And um, so uh, again, this culture. So, so again, uh, so culture is actually critical. And I yeah. mean, is it as simple as? And I mean, and it, and, and I, I don't want to. Again, I'm jumping. No far as you know the services uh, you provide into Africa well, is understanding that is, is, is getting in touch yeah, with yeah. that that no, it's, it's local crucial. person and to understand that cultural I understand the local component. culture and again I, I like to categorize states you go to any region of the world uh, it's absolutely critical you go to America it's Bugs Bunny I'm just being naughty <laughs> <laughs> you it's McDonald's man. We know it's, <laughs> it's Lionel but, but I think what I'm trying to say is that uh, is appreciating uh, um, Absolutely critical to understand the culture. I think the only differentiator is that Africa has probably got the highest, I call it uh, country, continent country per capita. In other words, there's no other continent in the world that has got 54 countries in one piece of land. There's no other country. Mm. You go to Argentina, you go to the US, is probably North America is probably four or five. Mm. Uh, your Alaskas, you can just probably delete them. I'm just being naughty. Um, uh, that's you bloody cold there. Yeah. Asia is probably like, uh, you probably have uh, 10, 15 countries there. Most of the guys are on the coast. But you, you tell me which continent has got 54. So, there's a, so people really take for, so the impact of not uh, navigating and appreciating the diversity of a culture on the continent is a detriment to many, many people and organizations. So it's coming back to your point, absolutely critical, not just to understand the influences from a generic perspective, but more importantly to realize, gosh, um, to navigate and be successful the continent, you can't use a cookie-cutter approach. Just to say, okay, this worked in Zim, I'm going to try it in Togo. Um, so so from that standpoint, it, it again, it becomes very clear that if you have an Africa strategy, uh, it's actually the, it's the wrong word. You, yeah. need, you need a Kenya strategy or a Nigeria yeah, strategy. Because to say Africa, yeah. it's just, you, you're assuming you're going to hit 54 So the so, so funny thing I always markets. say to people, uh, and you can concur because you've been to UK, back to Africa, uh, you're my brother from another mother, which is always like a like a cracker. <laughs> but <laughs> don't ask so about right. father. <laughs> <laughs> Let's not audit. <laughs> but, but uh, let, you know, I say to people, I say, have you ever heard of a, um, a European expert? And the guys say, no. I said, because Europe, you know, is very small geographically. It's, yes. It's a, uh, have you heard of, uh, no. Why? Because Europe is so, even with those few countries. Many countries, yes. France to Portugal, man. Yeah. I mean, to, if you're going to sell pizza in Portugal, would you say positioned the same way in Italy? Yeah. Definitely not. I yeah. mean, those guys know Italy know what Peter, I mean, they uh, created uh. Italy. Uh, and I say, have you ever heard of an American expert? Yeah, you might have, but everybody in America don't. Think they, I think they're they experts. But I say that, uh, but, but then you say to yourself, how many times have you heard of an African expert? Mm. Then you say, 
uh, there are so many African experts. I don't call myself an African expert. And I say, but if you're an African expert, you, you actually understand 54 Four. countries. Yes, yeah, it's yeah, yeah. And most of them, by the way, when you hear of them, they're actually not based in Africa. They're based somewhere else. And then you say, okay, which part of Africa have you been? Ah, well, I've been to Eswatini, mate. Uh, so, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah I've, I've been to Johannesburg. Yeah, yeah, that's part of Africa. I've and then you say, to, and and, um, and, <laughs> and 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 you say to yourself because of that, it, it's an undermining thing. But um, we're, we're a complex continent, and I think the challenge in the past has been trying to consolidate us, which to a certain extent, you know, what I like about the African Continental Free Trade Agreement is that it's saying, guys, we can we by trading more by ourselves and and leveraging off our different capabilities. We can take this continent forward. It's not mm. by saying it's a oneness, but a oneness in terms of leverage and offer differences, as opposed yeah. to making it one. And uh, and I and I think that's where uh, that's where the opportunities are. But at the same time, the success of your African strategy is appreciated. Yeah, everybody wants. I mean, let, let, let me land on this one. And I, remember, I always this came from my old boss, uh, Martin Davies. He's now in Saudi, and he always used to say to us, guys, there is no economy that grows by consumption. Mm. There is no economy that grows by consumption. If you're not producing mm. and industrializing, you won't grow. The danger and the curse we have in Africa is that also how many pieces of land have got plus or minus, besides India, have got plus or minus a population of 1.3, 1.4 billion, very few. Mm. So if you're a supplier of consumables, definitely. Beautiful. Yeah, I mean, you throw stuff here, it yes. grows. But if the, All those used Toyota cruises yeah. <laughs> no 100% and that's why uh, and the more populous the country is uh, the more attractive it is that's why Nigeria to be honest is is a, is a, is an attractive destination for consumer products because you've got 300 Just million massive. people in one geography the the next most populous country is Ethiopia which is 100 million but the reason Ethiopia didn't get the hype in the past was the it was a closed economy it's only in the last 5 years when Abiy Ahmed has come in that he's opened it up now. Really? Yeah, yeah. Because it's since they, when? Uh, I mean, how long have they been building that dam? I mean, it's still not. That's the world's biggest yeah, dam, I isn't it? I think it's the one that's uh, where where the Egyptians are saying, guys. Yeah, yeah they're uh, gonna they're gonna empty the Nile. Yeah, <laughs> well, yeah. the, in, in, on the Egypt side, but so I mean that that's incredible. But I mean that that's, that's Abiy Ahmed. Uh, obviously, that's taken off more when Abiy Ahmed has been there. So he's done some stuff, right? The whole war thing was wasn't like But my point is that. Uh, unfortunately, when you're a populous country, so if you think about it now, uh, besides diamonds, nobody really gets. If you've got a product, would you rather would you get excited selling it in Botswana, or would you rather sell it in Nigeria? If you want to be a millionaire, I'm just giving. you... Yes, no, uh, of course you want. You want the mouths. You want so 300 million mouths. You, you yeah. and, and if you've got a product, so and, and 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 fortunately, unfortunately, when when from a global perspective, that's what attracts people because to a certain extent, even though we're different countries, because we're on one piece of land, the idea is, gosh, okay, I've got a market of 1.3 billion, uh, but we know, you know, you know, with your shop rights, you know, with your Woolworths, the guys who've gone out there, that it, it's not as it's easier said than done, and I think that that's the mindset we have to navigate across, and uh, and I'll also just another stat is that, and this is more from an Africa perspective, is that. I don't know if you know, we're only 3% of global GDP in terms of all the economies put together in Africa. 3%? 3% of global GDP. Yeah. Now, just to give you some context, uh, the five top uh, performing uh, listed companies on the New York Stock Exchange, so all the best performing companies, which are really the tech guys, it's, it's Microsoft, it's AWS, it's uh, Google, I think ABC, that's Google. They're, they're, um, probably, well, you know, Twitter and Elon Musk are there now. Mm. But if you combine their revenues together, it's more than Africa's GDP. 
those five. Good heavens. That's how small we are. So, so incredible So you realize that in terms of value towards global GDP, we are very small. Mm. But what does that mean though? It, it means one of two things. One is that you need to realize, okay, it is where we are. Uh, we obviously can grow more, but we're not going to become 40% tomorrow. Yeah. Uh, but what is important to say, how do we position ourselves so that we tap into the 97%? Now, by 2050, it's estimated that 40% of the world's youth will be on our continent, which is absolutely great. We're going to breed and have all these young people running around. There'll be young little Jacques, there'll be young little Tendo, and young little uh, the gentleman here. But... The curse is William. that if, if you, William, <laughs> thanks, man. You must tell me your name before this session starts so I don't fake it to make it, man. Um, so this guy there. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's a podcast. <laughs> I hope people see what I'm trying what to say. say. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but I think the point is the, the, so, with that, so the, so the reality is you never have enough jobs on this continent to absorb all the people uh, that are going to be on this continent. That's the reality. Because our GDP is very small. But what it does position you, because you've still got that capability and that human resource per capita, you say, okay, how do we skill and train people so that they tap into the global GDP? And that's why it's important. And your Japans have done this. Your Singapore's have done it. And what you then do is say, okay, look, we've got these skill sets. Really position yourself to say, and I'm using an example of Ford or the or the uh, the Toyotas, the car manufacturers, where they manufacture here, but not for just for the African market. Probably five percent goes into the African market. The rest goes into the over, but into the rest of the world. But the guy's getting a job here. He's able to go home. Digital is going to be a big player. So I know your Microsoft, AWS, because I, you know, I've, I worked from Sage, they went to Deloitte. I worked for a digital skilling company called Elevate. We're doing some fantastic stuff with Microsoft and AWS. And one of the key things you realize, if you skill a person here on Microsoft technology, he can deal with a Microsoft issue anywhere part of the world because Microsoft technology is Microsoft technology. So mm. if he's a coder, he doesn't have to physically go. He'll go because better lifestyle. But if he, if it works out that he's he's getting working for programs in the US or the UK, uh, but getting a decent amount here, and then it goes into the economy, develops, then it's a win-win. So for me, that's where the opportunity of us as Africa going to the next level. Um, and one of the things I was saying to you, I know I'm talking too much, but it is a podcast. Um, well, this is good stuff. One of the things that yeah, I was talking to the danger of leapfrogging technology, you know, the yes. whole thing, hey, technology is allowing us to leapfrog our problems. Yeah. The danger or the curse of that is that some, t you know, some, t I think to a certain extent that leapfrogging actually makes you leapfrog over the problem and doesn't solve the problem. So I'll, I'll give you an example. I don't know if you've been to, uh, okay, I'm, uh, even whether it's Nigeria or Kenya, I mean, I go up, even if you go to Zim, even my, my own country, even South Africa to a certain extent, but South Africa is a bit more infrastructure. Zim, Zim has got great levels of te uh, technology penetration through the, you know, companies like Econet, you've got Telesel, there's great progress that has been made. You know, I've given you the example of how mm. technology has been used in the health space. But if you go generally into the country, the infrastructure is still fraught. Mm. Uh, it's still not great. Uh, I, I've been to some countries whereby you see, you'll hear the. I mean, if you look at the trends of venture capitalist investment, I think it's grown by eight percent year on year. Uh, Six point five billion in 2022. Uh, tw I think it's estimated it's going to be about seven or eight billion US dollars. So these are venture capitalists specifically inv inv investing in startups in Africa. Yes. Um, and the focus is really around technology enabled solutions. So the the tech space. 
and they look for social impact things. So the, the reason for investing is great. But if you follow those trends, you'll find that probably the greatest uh, sectors are fintech, health tech, uh, edutech, and uh, agritech. Okay. So that's probably the yep. four key ones, okay. which makes sense because yes, there's a lot yes. of activity happening there. Now, the leading ones is fintech, okay? The fintech, fintech. And the country that is leading and drawing the most attraction is Nigeria. Uh, because why the the amount of because of, once again the population size the the dependence of technology for financial services especially when there's no infrastructure the the banking system is there is, is quite is quite diverse but at the end of the day you need quite a lot there's a lot of data activity that's happening on the market which is great but it's drained a lot of fintech investment which is good but the infrastructure in some of the areas is still a disaster I mean I've been to the areas and I was saying to my colleague who works with AFC. I said to him, there's something wrong if if we're saying that fintech as a sector is growing and all the economic indicators are up, but the hospitals are still in shambles, the infrastructure is still in shambles. That means, in a way, that money is not translating and getting to the population. I just want to say, so where's that social impact that's, component thing? So where, what happened to that? That's the problem you have. That's the problem you have that you, 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 you've, got, you've got sectors and industries performing uh, and I'll give another extreme example, even out of Africa, India, a beautiful country, you and I know, uh, probably we know a lot of investment by big companies in India, but I know guys, I've never been there, but I know guys who go to India and they've gone to the slums and we think our slums, they are hectic. I mean, you hear the guys from India, then you say, but hang on guys, there's something wrong if we're saying a country is performing. Uh, and that's why there's that argument about GDP is not enough to justify the growth of a country. So my, for my, uh, coming back home to Africa, I think that's one of my biggest frustrations is that when people talk about cell phone penetration, telecoms penetration, we've probably got the highest rates in the world. And it's more because we, we can't afford to put landlines anymore. Yeah. Again, it's the leapfrog, it's co- a leapfrog component. But then the, t- the hospital is still, you live in South Africa here, we've mm-hmm. got, uh, there's that whole battle with NHI and this uh, NHI. The challenge you've got though is that you've our government hospitals are not coping. Yeah. Uh, our private hospitals are absolutely well. You and I are private medical aid. If I get a little sniff, I get I go there, I get injected. Uh, but you know the disclaimers that is there. And the problem that it does now is that it creates a social um, misnomer, which becomes a ticking time bomb. And uh, and we, we've seen in West Africa. You know, some I'll give you the, this is my case in point, and I'll I'll, I'll pause here uh, so I can let the I've got I mean, I've got a lot of questions, mi, but this is good stuff. Mi good But so the as I was talking about the greatest level of investment in the fintech space in West Africa, yes. right? Um which 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 is great. Um, the reports show it, indicators show it. Where is the greatest number of coups happening right now in Africa? If you think about it. Burkina Faso, you think about uh, the unrest in Senegal, you think about Mali, you know, all the coups that are happening in Africa right now, the biggest number right now is in that West African belt. And what are they being caused by? It's, it's been caused by the, the young people frustrated. And if you look at the issues, it's jobs, it's corruption, it's et cetera, et cetera. So you say, but hang on, the same region is showing the best performance in terms of fintech. So there, there's money. But it's falling apart on the But, but there's a social, did you get what I'm saying? So already mm. you say, it's, it's already an indicator. So this is, this is, as you say, this is, you're looking into the future. Future, yeah. yeah. Well, uh, uh, it's uh, a potential, now. yeah. It's yeah, happening yeah, now. Of, of so other African countries, yeah. if, if you don't take 
So yeah, yeah, I'm saying that's the risk we have in terms of if we're content and saying, okay, we are we are performing, we're having or technology is making a difference. Yeah, the home page thing, don't get me wrong, is all great. So I was in I was talking to a leadership team at uh, I think it was a program at one of the top banks, and I said to them, and they said to me, what is the measure of, of success of economy? And I said, look, uh, and I gave the example of South Africa again. I said, look, guys, if we're saying we're a good and established country and we're performing, um, but we've got the highest crime rate in the one of the highest crime rates in the world, uh, in, in, depending on how you slice and dice, or GB violence uh, in the world, there's something wrong. Uh, mm. we, we can't be content. So we can't be content and say, guys, we're making money, uh, but we've got the highest GBV. And if that doesn't shock us, so it ca- and that's why I like the whole ESG story in terms of social impact, in terms of saying, okay, let's make a social impact, let's still make money. Because I think it's forcing the world to kind of saying, guys, you know, we can't be, we can't measure success without reality. If guys are dying on the streets and there's crime and uh, and we still say, oh no, but we're performing as a country, uh, we'll never be perfect. But you, 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 there has to be a balance, and that's what I'm hoping will come through for Africa. What? So let's let's a uh, few things you touched on. Um, let's start with consumption versus production. Yeah. So production, again, uh, what's happening? We use the, the, the car industry as an example, yeah. public transport for that matter. Where, where are good examples of, of production, uh, uh, you know, new production factories being built, et cetera, et cetera? Are there any African case studies? Look, uh, I think all over the world, I mean, so all over Africa, <laughs> I mean, uh, let's, uh, you know, what I always say is, and I'm just trying to think off the top of my head, although there's not much on top of my head, but, um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, in terms of, uh, they'll come to mind, but. Because you've got, I mean, from a production, let's say production standpoint, you, you've got the, 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 and it's not production per se, it's mining, right? So there's the traditional, we'll dig out the gold and the diamonds. I mean, it's like, and the oil, that, that's all. I, I guess agriculture is, 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 is from a, 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 Example. A, a, you know, there's that. But again, but okay, let's, let's I want to touch on that. So if you, the production, but it. it, it, it do, do you know what the challenge is, Jacques? It's not that issue we haven't been producing, is that we haven't been higher up the value chain in terms of what we produce. So there's actually a very recent example. Uh, actually, it was in East Africa, Kenya. But I, I was talking to this on the John, not John Robbie, um, Bruce Whitfield's um, yes, uh, on, the on Africa the, show, the yeah. Africa show. And I highlighted this. And about a month ago, two months ago, East Kenya closed a trade agreement with EU mm. to supply agri-produce, etc., etc. Um into 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 the 28 countries in the EU, right? Kenya has always been uh, exporting to the EU. It's yes. not an issue. The difference, the differentiator was that these were they the, they added value to it. So yes, they so they shortened that supply chain effectively. They shortened the supply chain, but it was more they, they it was items that have been produced and have been sold. So they're getting more for bank for yes. the bank. Taking the gold, making exactly. jewelry with it, selling 100%. the jewelry, right? I think from I think that angle was more on the agri products. Yeah. Um, Ghana is another case, an example with Ivory Coast. You know the whole uh, coca story, whereby they put their foot down and said, "Guys, we've always been giving you raw cocoa for chocolates. 
we want to process them and then send you semi-processed goods for more value. Yes. Although Ghana is now bust, uh, bankrupt a bit, but anyway, that's your lesson in life in terms of when you put your foot down, you must know that uh, there, are consequences. there are consequences. But in principle, they did the right thing. So my point yes. is that the issue has never been even produced. So even you, uh, I come to South Africa, for example, in terms of during COVID, the whole J&J vaccine story, where the guy says, no, no, guys, uh, you have to produce a certain portion of the vaccine here as opposed to, and they pushed for it. So I think what I'm trying to say is the issue is not lack of production. So from a mining perspective, we've always been mining. And going back to donkey years, the issue is um, going higher the, up the value chain in terms of exporting uh, what we produce uh, and getting more bang for more back for more bank, bank for, for the buck. buck. Yes, yes. Uh, and you, you so that's immediate opportunity right there. Why? That's why isn't that? Why isn't right. value added that's faster? I think it's a number, and again, it differs from country to country. And um, I think one is that the to, to to it's it's an institutionalized problem. So in other words, if you are used, you know, it's one thing to say it, and then two to actually say, guys, let's do it. Uh, to a certain extent, is, and we've got ourselves, unfortunately, so for to do kind of that, that level of, of, of production or that level of industrialization, you need financing. Unfortunately, most of Africa's key economies are in huge debt. Mm. So to borrow to, to borrow to get borrow is a difficult thing, but you need to then partner with guys who've got money. Mm. Now, that's where your geopolitics start playing in because the Chinese will come in and they will give you a bit of cash, mm. but uh, it might compromise on quality but they will. Uh, the first world countries, uh, your UKs and the US is obviously a bit more sticky in terms of, in terms of debt versus cash. So I th the big thing I think is that there's a, and that's why I'm speaking to the African Continental Trade Agreement because that specifically talks to that to say, okay guys, we can't wait for somebody else to do it. We have to do it. Uh, I think it's estimated just by 2025 from 20. Uh, from 2005, Africa's industrialization will have doubled from like 400 to, uh, to, to 1 trillion or something like that. Uh, and this is because Africa is now using tools like the Africa Continental Free Trade Agreement saying, guys, we actually have to do this and do it ourselves. So uh, the ex examples I've given you of what's happening in East Africa, what's happening in West Africa, even South Africa, is part of that to say, guys, let us... Uh, uh, add more value up the value chain. So when we export, we get more money. Uh, in Nigeria, Dangote has built a new refinery. It's a big thing. Uh, the challenge you'll have, the challenge you'll have, is that guys would be making money out of supplying, out of the problem, which was supplying diesel and petrol to supply electricity. Now, when you've got um, when you've got the power issues sorted out, and you you're, and you're able to. I'm complicating many things here. I mean, the guys, in terms of the old structure where uh, they were selling the crude oil, mm. uh, the guys were making money out of that. Yeah, so easy. now, if you are going to now no longer be exporting and getting money for that, you're actually using government resources and the country resources to actually refine the oil. The value model changes. Mm. And, and unfortunately, somebody doesn't want like that. Somebody's going to lose out. And that's where the resistance is. And, you, and the curse we've got, even in South Africa now, is that the, I've seen this in Zim. The challenge you're going to have is that the more we go off the grid and we have these dependency backup solutions for power, whether it's uh, fuel, whether it's diesel, whether it's generators, guys are killing it. Eh? Whoever's selling generators now is making a killing. Now, if this guy is making a million now, you have to have to really have the right mindset, character, integrity. If tomorrow 
uh, a power solution comes for South Africa where you say, okay, guys, we can actually go back to electricity. Yes. You're no longer going to be making billions. Yeah, not because I don't want to, because I'm more concerned about my loss of, of sales on this side. Whether you like it or not. the detriment of, of the economy. So now there's a, and that's the challenge you have is uh, uh, resolving and fixing those problems. So, that, so that's a, it's a problem with it's, it's a misalignment of incentives at the end of the day. So, but the only way out of that you have strong leadership. You mm. have guys who come on board. Uh, people give example of Kagame. Uh, Kagame, you know, with what happened in Rwanda, the whole thing. He's crime. I think economically he's done great. Uh, look, anybody who supports Arsenal is not a friend of mine because I'm a Chelsea fan. <laughs> but also, the reality of Rwanda is a small country. Mm. I always challenge and say, guys. If you if you're looking after a country that's got plus or minus twelve million people, and you're looking after a country that was sixty million people, and you've got those kind of dynamics, it's easier. It's easier. It's, it's more mobile. Yeah, you're more mobile. Uh, you know, if Cyril uh, was to wake up, and I always say to people, you know, being demo, if you're a democrat, if if your China is not like a democracy with a billion people, if that Jing Jing wakes up and he says, guys, let's have a DA EFF. Uh, <laughs> ANC discussion in terms of what's the best way forward. Uh, and you've got a billion people you need to... So sometimes it's easy. I'm not saying it's the right thing. Just to wake up and say, guys... This is what we're doing. Clear. This is what we're doing. We're going to do it. Everybody's going to have an iPad in the school. So yeah. it's got swings and roundabouts. So so touching on on on, on the opportunities, uh, I want to... Uh, also, you, you, you mentioned India. I want I want to discuss... So one of the questions is, how you know, is there comparison... In the markets, what what's the similarities between India and, and, and South Africa or Africa for that matter? But uh, that's the one. But coming back to the um, edutech, I mean, <laughs> I, I I've got a, I'm passionate about education, yeah, in particular business education. I believe yeah. that's you know SMEs. That's where we create jobs. And we we keep on hearing that Africa forty percent is going to have the youngest, yeah. uh, uh, um, you know. Uh, human uh, resource in in, 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 yeah. in the world, but if they're not educated, because no one talks about yeah, that. Yeah. So so I want to talk about education, and then I guess production. Let's say let's call it digital uh, uh, services. Yeah. Or that's the real opportunity. Exporting yeah. that, yeah. becoming the call center. <laughs> back to basics, and, yeah. and, and it feels to me that we 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 have the opportunity to become yeah. the new India. Yeah. You know where yeah. where you've got the skill. Cheap labor, yeah. but skilled labor. Yeah. Is, that, is that is that effectively where we're going? That's what I, I think uh, that would be a solution. But I, I would even step away from India. Do you know the model I really like is Dubai. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you think about Dubai, what endowments does Dubai have? Really, Dubai, not Saudi, no, not, it's not Qatar. It's it's I'm talking desert. about Dubai. It's desert. Mm. All these guys did. They said, "Flip, guys, we've only got desert. We're kind of in the middle of everywhere else. But let's just create." a city that becomes a metropolitan and becomes a junction point for everybody else and will give incentives and and, and support it, uh, play with the taxes, and that's how Dubai was built. And for me, that's always fascinating because these guys, and uh, it's not like they had nothing, they didn't have much. And I think what I'm trying to say is that we actually have got much more in terms of tangible stuff. But the reason I like the, the example of Dubai, you actually realize that if you've got a leadership from a public and private sector perspective that works together, then somebody can then say, okay, Dubai is not a, democrat- is not a, a democracy. So maybe that's why it's working. And coming back to your yeah. China point so, <laughs> example. So, and, uh, but that's an argument for another point, yeah. discussion. But I think the point I'm trying to get to is that, uh, again, generalizing Africa is dangerous, but coming back to your point, when you look at education, 
one of the key trends that I've actually seen, and I saw it because I said I was working for a company that did mass scaling. We used to work with the USAIDs, with the GTZs, uh, the donor agencies that are investing in Africa for scaling. And, the de- and I'll give you a case in example, actually what happened, and it gives you better context. So one of the big problems that you have is when guys come out of university, they don't have the right skills to actually start working and hitting the ground running mm. and work day one. You actually have to do like a soft skills uh, uh, work readiness uh, program. And um, uh, at the time I was in Nigeria, also doing stuff in Rwanda, but the, even in South Africa, we had the same challenge whereby massive guys coming out of, massive numbers coming out of university, and the guys, so there's, it's called skilling for employability. So a lot of the funders have got funding for this, which is great. They'll say, they'll come to institutions like Microsoft and their partners, or AWS and the partners, say, guys, especially because digital is the in thing, yes. uh, we will give you money to skill up these guys to be employable. Great, man. I mean, if you're a training partner, uh, you're not an NGO, you make money out of it. Uh, it's a win-win because you're, a- you're adding to the education. Um, you, the country's getting skilled people. Uh, it's technology. As a funder, they've ticked off their uh, their impact, etc., uh, etc. Et the problem and they is have cheap labor now. They have they can labor. they can the immediately tap into that 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 pool of, yeah, of, of, of skills. Labor. Skills, yeah. But then the catch that the guys were saying, which was right, the funders would say, all we want is, I think the it wasn't even high. It was like sixty percent employability. So if you are going to train them, we'll give you the money, but you must guarantee at least sixty percent of them will be employed. And that was a big problem. And I remember in one project in Rwanda, uh, the number was actually, I kid you not, they said just train 6,000 guys, 5,000. They just said 5,000. And 60%, we want you to give them, make sure they get jobs because we're training the Microsoft. And not, not jobs anywhere in the world, jobs in their country. Yes. So from a funding perspective, that was great responsibility because they're saying, guys, we're going to skill them, we're going to train them, but we want these guys being trained and then shooting off to the Amazon, oh. or to the US. They have to stay in their country and contribute. So we said, no, no, that's fine. Rwanda, I guarantee you, just 60%, okay, let's say 50% of 5,000 is 2,500. We could not get jobs for 2,500 people. And if you think about it, a population of uh, and plus or minus to that uh, 12 million people. Even South Africa, you think about it, getting jobs for 2,500 guys, even after you've trained them and you've visited skill, is hard. And there was now a mindset that was happening in terms of, even in those, we call them skilling for employability, there was now a big vein where the guys were saying, skill them for entrepreneurism. In other words, set up these guys to be, um, to start on their own ventures. Mm. Now, that was a good idea. The problem is that when a guy is coming out of university, to actually teach him to be an entrepreneur, not everybody is designed to be an entrepreneur. And that's the dilemma. So the good thing is that I think funding and the the, the multilateral world, even the public-private sector world, is appreciating that it's no longer adequate to 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 skill people for jobs because I've got I told you about the three percent. Whatever going to have enough jobs. So skilling for jobs and training and educating for jobs is is going to be a challenge. But there was a the, the they were going back to India and the, the reason I'm bringing this was that India and China did it and I forgot the name of the model. But about 50 or 80 years ago, uh, they they realized, uh, and this was well researched by I think the Boston Consultancy Group or one of these big research companies, they realized that, guys, we've got this burgeoning population. There is no way with where our economies and populations are going to go 
that are going to be able to create enough jobs to absorb these guys. I mean, you look at China, there's no way, uh, and they were going to create jobs to, to, to employ a billion plus or minus people. That's why whether you hate them or love them, China exports as much as I just want to say, you, uh, it's a, you, that's a white-collar factory. Yeah. Export, it's uh, India doesn't export as much, but what India does is that call centers of the world. Yes. Uh, so, so already they started thinking that way. But one of the things they started doing in there, uh, especially India, uh, more than China, and I think because that's China is not a democracy, India is a democracy. One of the things India did, uh, I think it was actually started off in China but flourished in India, is what they did, they said at the education level, right from preschool mm. or prep, they began to integrate entrepreneurial skilling ah. in the schooling system. Got it. So it was like when you're in primary school, there's a little module, a little course. Yes. The, by the you go to high school, it's there. It's, it's by it's the just, time it, it creates this way of thinking. Aha. Because if you think about it, if you create an entrepreneur who starts off, he's going to be able to employ more people. Mm. So if you think, you know, we laugh about it. We say, flip, Indian guys are very entrepreneurial. Uh, just in terms of, but it's just, it's just, it's, it's, a, it's, a, oh, it's a cultural. Yeah, it's yeah, not yeah, even how the education is pulled over into culture. You, you just from day one, you know, you're thinking of doing business. Yes. And, doing, and even since they say Nigeria, it's, it's, it's almost yeah. the same hustle, yeah. but it's not embedded in the, in, it's not institutionalized. And if you think about it now, not trying to be funny, as much as India's entrepreneurial, but if you look at the top performing tech companies in the world, uh, who are the CEOs? Uh, you look at Twitter. I think I think mm. it's Indian guy. Uh, why Microsoft? Microsoft, uh, uh, yeah. Google. Uh, yeah. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's very <laughs> Indian. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so it's not just an. I think the reason I'm highlighting it, it's not just they're built on entrepreneurs, but entrepreneurs who can do business. So coming back to your point, entrepreneurship, entrepreneurship. Uh, but so coming back to your point is that the solution is not just in terms of educating with regards to. Uh, ma okay, we still need the math, sciences, physics, chemistry. And the, you can't do it. I mean, the last thing is, I always say to people, when they say, guys, entrepreneurs, entrepreneurs, I say, if tomorrow you're, you, 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 you get sick and you have to go on to a hospital bed and you have to have an emergency, emergency operation, and the guy rocks us up and say, look, I never really went to medical school. I never really wrote the exam, but put, I got experience, man. man. And, and I can make a plan. I mean, you'll be the last one. You want someone to spend that five years dissecting, testing, so there's a balance in there but i think the point i want to highlight is that coming back to africa is that and and i'm learning now as i do my own business is that uh if i'd learned and been equipped with uh, with entrepreneurial skills uh, at an earlier age and been informed i mean i mean i teach programs at universities now at master's level where it's um uh, entrepreneurial entrepreneurial there, there, there's a master's in management in 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 in, 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 in on being an entrepreneur. That word is always always exciting. Um, but you say to yourself, "Gosh, okay, it's right to study it at a master's level." Uh, but gosh, man, uh, how many are really going to be successful entrepreneurs because they're doing it now? So it's a catch twenty two. But if we're able to build that in the education system at a much earlier age, that mindset, mm. uh, not everybody's made, b built to be an entrepreneur, but I think when you start getting that mindset and, uh, and building those ventures at that early age, the, the dynamics are different uh, and it makes a huge impact. It's, it's, I mean, I, I, I love that. I think the, the, the um, what, what excites me, and I think again, I mean, there's, there's the, 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 Problems. I mean, I give you a, a practical example of education. I said I'm, I'm very passionate about yeah. it. Actually, just um, just had a, a first short course uh, accredited by Northwest um, Business School. Yeah. yeah, 
Business school. So again, and, and I <laughs> predicted this. Actually, I saw a, a Facebook post I, I wrote eight years ago about the e-learning revolution yeah. started. And I said, look, there's two things that, that's going to happen. Number one is your your private sector either will create the content or yeah. they, they will move closer to the, to the business schools yeah. or... Actually, the other way around, I'm surprised how the best business schools move closer to the private sector. Because yeah. uh, traditionally, the universities think they can, or the yeah. academics think they can create the best content. Yeah, it's yeah. not the case. Not in business in any way. Yeah. They can't. So it's, it's very important to move close, closely, uh, work closely with the private sector. Um, but the problem is, historically, you know, these government institutions, and that's what universities are. I'm, yeah. I'm still amazed, actually, how, how much brand equity yeah. they have yeah. that people go straight because they have this brand they go for them yeah. not necessarily the best content yeah. right point is where's the money back guarantee right i say it's interesting you can do your mba but uh, oak standing on the street corner they can't find a job yeah. so who takes responsibility for that no yeah. you need you had you you trained me yeah you did not prepare me to get a job yeah. or you you don't work closely with with, <coughs> with the private sector to help me get that job afterwards yeah. so I, I want my money back after yeah. six months yeah. you know so so there's an element of of um, the right what are the consequences of your your mba yeah. mr university mr <laughs> business school no consequences yeah. you need to be rated uh, um based on the level of employment. Yeah. I mean, these micro courses. Some of them, uh, uh, when they when they MOOCs, when MOOCs launched, uh, massive open online courses. Yeah. Right when MOOCs launched in 2012, it was a six month money back guarantee. Is that yeah. mine? Is it mine? I thought I switched this damn thing off. No, Sorry. I was trying to call you. Sorry, man. I was trying to call you in the middle of the session, but you just was it you? I was. Uh, <laughs> said, it's like uh, Jacques. Can I have? Can I say something? Jacques, I want to say something. <laughs> Sorry, I, I realized how this bloody thing. I sent you a WhatsApp, but you don't get it. You don't get it. I want to say something. Sorry, man. I thought the stupid no, thing was no, no, on Wi-Fi. That's why I was. I, I thought I switched no, it off. I was worried it was mine. But um, no, but I hear point. Just say, look, how, how does the quali the guy gets the qualification and then he doesn't get the the job? And who's responsible? And, and, and no, and no one's responsible. Yeah. It's like, sorry, you just spent two hundred grand. I'm yeah. sorry to you. You can't find the yeah, job. So, so there's a there's three components there. Anyway, I'll, I'll get to my point. But I think in South Africa, where the opportunities are, is number one, the the, the your tertiary education yeah. from a business standpoint, yeah. the content's not sufficient. Yeah. Uh, 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 prone to entrepreneurship. Yeah. Uh, number one, there are no consequences yeah. for inferior. Uh, uh, um, degree or, yeah. or, or, or short course. And number three is why not help with the placement? Now, <coughs> if I look at, at, at the opportunity for South Africa, and again, this is something coming back to India, the reality, this is something a government's supposed to do. I always say South Africa yeah. should have been India. Yeah. I mean, we have, we have beautiful case studies of yeah. the movie industry in Cape Town, for yeah. example. There are insurance companies that yeah. in, in, in the UK that use have yeah. their call centers based in Cape Town. Because of our time zones, our, our yeah. language, um, skills level, and so on. So it's that it's the number one skilling up, but finding the jobs. Yeah. It's 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 how do we export, like you say, find sixty percent yeah. local. No, stay local. Yeah. How do we export this? 
this white collar yeah. factory? How do we get sixty percent of them employed <laughs> yeah. in Europe, but they the address is, is still Pretoria yeah. or Joburg for that matter? So look, the reality it has to be a public and private um, collaboration. There's no way. Um, you can expect government to do it by themselves, and I'm gonna get asked, you know, put something mind provoking around government as well that we we also take for granted. But coming back to your point is, look, first and foremost, you know, it's, it, demand and supply is critical. So, ideally, if we're doing a whole lot of skills and producing qualifications out there that are not getting jobs, that means there's a we're skilling in the wrong way. That's the yes. and that could be a number of reasons. Is it, it could be the, the nature of our institutions. It could be, again, in terms of we don't understand our market. Uh, there, there could be a whole number of reasons. But ideally, whether we like it or not, if we're producing qualifications that are not being absorbed into our local job space, even though there's a shortage of skills, uh, because there's a bigger picture of is the economy performing. I mean, you, look, using South Africa as an example, the whole logistics area because of what's happening with um, Transnet. Uh, and the impact that it's having with regards to if you don't have proper infrastructure, you you don't have um, commodities that bring us money uh, moving across the border. That means our exports are not bringing us money. And potentially plus or minus 5,000 people are going to lose jobs. That's not, uh, And uh, you then can't expect a new batch of people who come who are less experienced than them to get jobs. So yeah. there's a bigger picture to that. But to remain a bit focused in terms of skilling right, it's absolutely critical to identify the output of our skilling uh, and our education and in terms of what is needed. Then. Having said that, I'll just give you a great example because I was speaking last time. Uh, she's a good colleague of mine, a CEO of one of the big, uh, she is of the, of the, of, of uh, Swiss sport. Uh, mm -hmm. She actually mentioned it in a class and uh, <coughs> it was, um, she's CEO of Swiss sport. She went to Switzerland Um and one thing she found fascinating was that in Switzerland, um, there are very limited number of people who go to university. Now, we know who go to university. Now, we know Switzerland is, if you think anything Swiss, whether it's chocolates, whether it's the watch, whether it's a uh, cutting of diamonds, craft, craftsmanship, financial systems. I mean, they've got, for a country, for, for it to be pumping the way they're pumping, uh, they've got great skill sets yes. uh, and local guys skilled. But they're education system is designed in such a way that people kind of this as they leave the uh, secondary uh, primary school levels go goes don't have to go to university so if the guy wants to go into the aircraft thing he, i think we call the artisan space the the model of education and skilling uh, and the job congruence is aligned Yes. Uh, so there's not a rush to go to university. There's a rush to get into a skill that gets you a job. Yes. And it's actually working. So the number of people... Get your hands there. I haven't researched it, but you're just saying the number of people who've actually uh, been trained, who've gone to... It's quite a small number. Uh, and you realize, gosh, uh, and you look at the economy and the way it's performing. So coming back home, I think that's something that has to be done. Uh, again, the, the the populations of Switzerland compared to South Africa obviously different, the numbers different, but definitely you have to have that audit. And that audit has been done. I think it's the implementation is the challenge. Uh, coming back, so that's one way of helping refine the problem. But secondly, uh, Africa is great for offshore sourcing. Uh, it's the language, it's the cost. And p places like India have become more expensive over the years, making us more competitive. Yes. Believe it or not, I think before India, Mexico was actually the outsourcing base for a long time. 
And I think and, and the Americans love the Philippines, right? Yeah, so yeah, I think yeah. historically as well. Philippines. Uh, yeah. But what has happened over the years, because those guys have built a base and a skill set in those countries, it's traditionally, it's historically become more expensive. Yes, correct. Because obviously you start continuing, and it's a yeah, natural growth. Yeah. But because Africa was behind, we've also, and our, our and it's sad to say, because we're cheaper, mm. uh, I like to use the word, we are more competitive. Yeah. yeah so, yeah. but again, doing it in South Africa is different from doing it in Mozambique. Mm. It's different from doing it in Angola. Yes. Um, because, yeah, in South Africa, probably English could get away with Mozambique. Very, very difficult yeah. because Portuguese. Portuguese, yeah, yeah. Uh, you, go, you start going north, more into Africa, West Africa becomes Francophone, which is fine uh, if you've got the French demand. Uh, so it differs from country to country, but going back to your point is that definitely what you you have to do, you have to have, the reason I'm saying public and private sector, you actually have to have that collaboration whereby you say, okay, guys, let's build the skill set. Uh, you know, believe it or not, South Africa, we've got some great models. The, the CETA model, uh, the CETA model in terms of money that is pushed out, that is taken from corporate and in terms of skilling into the country, whether it's Bank CETA or it's in CETA. I agree. I was just talking about Agri CETA in the week. Yeah. yeah the, the, if you think about it, we've actually put a lot there and there's a lot of skills that are coming out. Some of the frustration in terms of why those guys are not getting jobs is more in the case of where the economy is as opposed to the demand for the skill, where guys will say, guys, we can't absorb any more, employ any more people because uh, we're not making that much money. That's a, that's an element of it. Um, but if you continue having, I mean, Amazon is a good example <coughs> in terms of the investment they're making on the continent. I know Google has done something in Ghana. So it's not for lack of trying. And uh, and sometimes we, 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 uh, we underestimate the positive that the government is doing. And having said that, I, I said I wanted to just share with you something that's mind-provoking. You know, I, I, I say in some of the sessions I lead or the master classes or the workshops I do, I say, guys, if your son, little Johnny, or, okay, let's be diverse, or little Skumbuzo, or little Cecilia, <laughs> these days, I mean, if I want to be diverse, I have to, <laughs> I have to brought in seven languages. After, after we win the World Cup, it's little Sia. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, little Sia, if tomorrow little Sia says, Dad, I, or Mommy, I want to be um, the next Bill Gates, or I want to be an innovation or a technology consultant, or I want to be a marketer, if they say that when they're in grade three or four, you know, as a parent, you'll run around, you'll make sure you expose them to books, to the iPad, mm. whatever it is, so that by the time they, they they get to 20, maybe they've started their own business, but you start ingraining them. If little Seal or little Johnny comes tomorrow and says, I want to be a politician. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> You, you will take him to the bathroom. Okay, these days you can't do it. You will, you will, no, no chocolates yeah, for yeah, the rest yeah. of your life. Yeah, yeah. But you know the irony of life is? When that guy becomes the next Bill Gates, who's going to have the most influence in terms of their business being a success? It's mm. going to be a politician. And I said to you guys, why is it that we have actually, and we wait for, uh, you know, royalty has got a beautiful model whereby if you are born in royalty today, from the day you are one year old, you are taught and you are groomed to be a king. Yes. You are taught the way you go to the toilet, the way you eat, the way you talk, because one day you're going to be a king. And because you're going to be a king, uh, your mindset, by the time you become king, even Prince William, it's been decades of preparation. Normal. Yeah, and when he normal. becomes king, he knows this is what I do. Yes, the world has changed, but he's king. Unfortunately, with politicians, uh, funny enough, it's one day some of these politicians wake up and say, okay, I'm going to be a politician. He makes it, et cetera, et cetera. But the point I'm getting to is that we half 90%, I think it's even a higher percentage of our problems is because of politicians. And you, you're coming back to education and you ask yourself, why is it that we've never actually invested 
in teaching our kids to be great politicians or good politicians from a young age, such that when they get to, when they do become a politician, you've actually got invested time in it. And it's, I'm it's like it's like the entrepreneurship example. Exactly. Just the, it's it's yeah, it's, it's it's business one hundred and one. Yeah, it's a politician one hundred and one. Yeah, or whatever. You know, it's like what what is what does it look smell. And taste like, and, and you're right, because there's no framework. And the economies that have done well is where government and private sector work. The US, okay, it's, it's got its weaknesses, but if you look when, when where, you know, where the top five performing companies in the world, they're US, and the, the government supports them. Mm. Uh, Apple, Microsoft, AWS, Twitter, yeah. all of those, the government makes sure it creates an environment for those guys to thrive. thrive. And even in India, the guys do that. So you actually find when it does work, yes, corruption will be there, and I'm not denying that it has to be dealt with. But I'm just saying that um, if we're able to, yeah, okay, and we, and we, you've got your Tabombekis, your Abasanjos, who've built these leadership schools, which are great. But these are for Madalas, these are for mm-hmm. people who are grown up. But when we're teaching our kids entrepreneurial skills and leadership skills and even politician skills, now if you think we start doing that at a young age, and we start ingraining I, that. I, I like that. I've, nev- I've never, I've never thought of that that way. And but that's you're why right. I'm we, here, that's why I'm that's here, a, Thank you, my man. It's, <laughs> it's, uh, I, I, no, it's it, it it is a very valid point. And and um, because even now, certain things you take for granted. Yeah. You and I, because you grow up in a house that there's there's integrity, values, yeah. uh, good examples. We know, just automatically, you know what what honesty looks like and tomorrow you and I will be honest politicians, right? But if no one laid those foundations, then you influence by the room, which I think Mm. is more a a classic example of the lack of leadership. And then everybody becomes like a, what's a rotten apple, you know, in the, in in the basket. Um, And why not? Or even for that, the kids can stand up and and one day when they they get ready to vote at 18, which that is another conversation. I I (laughs) believe you're a snothead at 18. I, I, I don't believe <laughs> you, can you should right. be voting. I mean, it's, uh, in America, you can't drink before you're 21, but you can vote. No, man, come on. It's it's nuts. What do you know? But anyway, it's when you come to that time when it's time to vote, yeah. you understand what leadership, good I leadership should look like. Yeah. And you can say, but that's not good leadership. Yeah. This is dodgy. No, that, and you, that's... Uh, and it goes back to, to a culture mm. uh, because you, you create a culture and a vibe. But culture is dynamic, but... When a guy comes out of school, so you know what I was trying to ingrain with my son? He's in metric, I said. My, my son's metric this year. I said, my boy, next year you're going to be unemployed. Uh, yes, you get your metric, you're going to university, but literally, you're going to get, it was a wake-up call for me as a parent. I'm saying, flip, I've spent 13, 14 years taking this guy to private school, etc., etc. Yeah. Uh, next year, uh, he's going to be unemployed. Yes, you'll get into three years, you'll do university, but theoretically, you're going unemployed. So now, I actually said, you have to start thinking of working, stroke, business yes. uh, before you come out of university and it's already too late and yeah and remember for 18 years you've been sitting behind a desk with teachers and advising you and studying climbing studying climbing so now suddenly you have to start thinking gosh in three or four years i'm going to actually have to find a job and to be honest with you it's slightly too late i mean if you get it that's great but imagine you've ingrained it when you 
grade one, grade two, grade three. Okay, guys, this is the world. They are you need maths, physics, and science, but this is how you start a business. And schools are doing that. You know, there's a business module, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, yes, and you could be a politician. Um, if you're a minister of health, this is what I expected. Why is it important when you're responsible? People's lives are saved. When you're irresponsible, people die. Mm. If you're a minister of finance, if you're responsible, the economy does well, etc. Et yeah. If you're yeah. irresponsible, you know this is what happens. So really, you guys, and you know, it's, I remember my parents used to have to pull me to listen to news uh, when I was growing up. Just news. That's, a, that's the most boring thing. But now, if you think <laughs> about it, if you had grain in that, kids will start asking, okay, but dad, what does uh, embezzlement mean? Oh, what does, why is that bad? Oh, what does yeah, this yeah, mean? What does yeah. that mean? And you're talking about education uh, and that's an element I feel there's a big hole. Ethics uh, 101. We, yeah, we say, not only ethics, everything rises and falls on leadership. Mm. Uh, and I'll, 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 I'll end with this. Uh, you know, I, I'm part of the PT at my kids' school. And uh, I've done, I, I've, I've run programs with, for leadership development, exec programs, um, and you know this. You know when you when you are uh, some of the big in things that were happened during COVID, guys wanted to get educated on EQ. I mean, mm, at the corporate mm. level, emotional yes. quotient. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. The reason why it was understanding, we're going through COVID, you had execs who had been leading companies for years began to realize, guys, we have to get in touch with our softer side, mm. which was sensible. Mm. But, you know, trying to teach somebody when they are 55, 60, 40 years to be more emotionally sensitive uh, or to change their mindset in terms of how to deal with people. That's it's tough. hard because the guy is skilled. But then you realize, gosh, uh, being part of the PTA, you realize you've got little Johnny or little Skumbuzo who's coming at grade one and you've got the opportunity to nurture it and build it then in the right way and learn from the mistakes there so that by the time he gets there, it's actually, I mean, if he doesn't want to do it, it's by choice, but it's not out of education. So uh, coming back to your point, um, it's, it's easier to say that, that I totally agree. I think in different regions of the world, uh, in Africa, but again, principally, I think that's, that, that's, that's, that will make a huge impact. I'll, uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll end with this example just to touch on that. Uh, I was actually discussing with William in the car yesterday. So I grew up. William the is the guy in the room as well. He's that other guy. He's, he's, that, guy. Other, he's that other. <laughs> By the way, that's William. <laughs> if you're wondering who that is, it's. <laughs> uh, 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 so I, I, I grew up in the Free State, yeah. and and your entrepreneurs, uh, traditionally, uh, were the well. Few Afrikaners here and there, yeah. obviously, you know, professional animals uh, back in the yeah. day, and then the Portuguese and the Greeks, yeah. right? Old news, yeah. right? They, these oaks operate. And uh, one of these uh, Portuguese entrepreneurs, um, it's a friend of mine actually told me the story. He said, Yeah, he, he asked him about where did you study? And he yeah. said, No, he's got a, a BSc yeah. qualification. Yeah. He said, And what? He said, yeah, Well, uh, behind service counter. <laughs> And, uh, you know, they throw them behind the counter when they're five years old. You know, they, they're slapping the till and they, <laughs> yeah. they just learn the business yeah, and it becomes yeah. part of a way yeah. of thinking and doing. Uh, Rotendo, thank you. It was no, uh, pleasure, it was man, an absolute Jacques. pleasure talking to you. It's very insightful. Appreciate your time. Thanks, man. Hope this, this uh, reflections on a son of the soil. I love this. I love I'm this. It's, it's beautiful. I think it's going to do very well. I'm excited about it. I think because of the story it tells and, uh, and how it embraces the continent and just creates a vibe. Uh, so I'm looking really forward to, to, to launching it and, and making it uh, grow and grow. Uh, I think Rumble in the Jungle did well. This is a different genre altogether. But I think it's also nice because, you know, everybody's talking about business. Uh, yeah. 
and this is another angle. And it just, just again, for me, this cuts across uh, regardless. Yeah. You, you can yeah. give it to your grandmother, yeah. give it to your child. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a very nice, nice. I'm looking nice forward to it. We'll speak soon. Thanks, Jacques. Cool beans, man. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and leave a review and follow us on social media at Biz, B-I-Z, Crush.